0: So, something you may or may not know about me is that at my core, I am a music nerd. I think I've gotten better at hiding this over the years, and if I'm wrong about that, please don't tell me, but just to give you some context where I'm coming from, in middle school, I used to carry my music theater scores with me to every class. So, math class, science class, I was there with huge books full of sheet music. Because I, at that time, didn't know that there was such a thing as a music nerd or that I was one. I just loved music theater. I wanted to have it with me everywhere I went. And I especially loved a show called Les Mis, which is a a musical setting of the famous novel by Victor Hugo. I remember watching this over and over and over again on VHS, which meant I had to rewind it when it was over. And I knew every word of every song by heart. And Les Mis was my first real experience of musical motifs. You know, when a, um, a melody is developed to represent a character or a theme in a story. A lot of composers do this. So even if you're not a music theater nerd, maybe you've seen Star Wars. And you always know in Star Wars when Darth Vader is about to show up because you hear his theme. He has his own song. But it's really interesting when a musical theme gets recapitulated when it's repeated and maybe changed slightly to build on our emotional associations and our understanding of a story as it unfolds. This is what Les Mis does, and I think it's one of the reasons that I loved it so much as a child. Now the story, if you don't know it, is a sad one about French students who try to organize a revolution against the corrupt government of post-revolutionary France. Their passion is inspiring, And you feel it in their battle song near the end of Act 1. The refrain reads like this. Do you hear the people sing, singing the song of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drum, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? Then join in the fight that will give you the right to be free." Some of you are singing along in your heads right now. Thank you. Now, they sing this song as they erect a literal barricade and plan to overthrow their oppressors. They fight valiantly, but they are completely wiped out after one skirmish. The revolution fails, almost everyone in the show dies, and it seems like all hope is lost. But at the very end of the show, there's a hint for us in the music that the story isn't really over yet. The battle theme is reprised, this time sung not by a chorus of living soldiers, but by a chorus of heavenly witnesses. They sing the familiar tune, but this time with new lyrics. Do you hear the people sing, lost in the valley of the night, It is the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest night will end and the sun will rise. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. We will walk behind the plowshare. We will put away the sword. The chain will be broken and all men will have their reward. This theme and its recapitulation, they make the story cohere for us. The composers use familiar music to connect us to the hope and the angst of an oppressed people and to help us feel their desperation for a better world. And then they build on that by showing us that the happy ending is coming, but it will be bigger and more ultimate than anyone knew to ask or imagine. This morning, something very similar is happening in Romans chapter 8 because Paul, like all the biblical authors, is a composer of sorts. He's weaving together the themes of the gospel to play for us a symphony, to help us hear how the whole story coheres. So very briefly, in chapters 1 through 4 of the letter, Paul is introducing the major themes of the Old Testament. Creation, sin, human brokenness, the calling of Israel, the giving of the law, the law's inability to repair the human heart. And then in chapter five through seven, we see how these themes are then reinterpreted, recapitulated through the life of Jesus and how we then participate in that story. We sing that song with him. So in Romans five, death in Adam becomes life in Christ. In Romans six, we see that the waters of baptism become our exodus from Egypt. We're reliving the story. In chapter 7, we hand over the law of sin and death to receive instead the law of the spirit of life, which sets us free. Do you hear the theme and then the remix in all of these? Well, let me we get to chapter 8, which is the great crescendo of the whole book, where Paul argues that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of Israel's hope, he's not only the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the savior of all creation. Listen to verse 22. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this morning, I want to reflect on the music of the gospel with you as we hear it in Romans 8. And specifically, we'll listen for what this tells us about the true expanse of redemption and the nature of Christian hope. Here we go, starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So Paul is making an argument here about the scope of Jesus' ministry. And in doing that, he's taking us back to the very beginning of the story, creation. This is the garden scene. It's a familiar tune with new lyrics. We're reminded with all this talk of creation of Genesis 1 and 2, when God called human beings to steward creation. But we all know that that didn't work out very well. And Paul reminds us here that the consequences for our parents' sin, the consequences of sin extended beyond humanity's guilt. Sin didn't only separate us from God and us from each other, in other words. The fall extended to physical bodies and the physical world. Specifically, in Genesis 3, God cursed the ground. He said, thorns and thistles it will produce. And he promised pain and childbirth. This is what Paul is referring to when he says creation was subjected to futility. He's reminding us of that original theme. But here's the remix. Look at verse 20. The one who subjected it did so in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. In other words... From the very beginning, God's rescue plan has included not just the redemption of humanity, but the renewal of all created things. Paul has been building up to this moment throughout the whole book. This is the climax. It's the recapitulation, the moment when he demonstrates the true scope of God's redemptive work. Now he's writing, Paul is writing here to a mixed Jewish-Gentile audience. There's some tension in this group, and these words are actually unifying because the point he's making here is the gospel is bigger than Jewish vindication, and it is bigger than Gentile inclusion. The gospel is the rescue of all creation, and in case they don't pick up on this, Paul then repeats the word creation five times in our passage. Verse 19, for the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21, so that the creation itself will be set free. Verse 22, for the creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Think bigger, Paul is saying. The scope of redemption is much bigger than you might think. And this is an important word for us too. Our context isn't one of Jewish-Gentile tension, but we have our own issues, don't we? We may not nationalize the gospel, for example, but we do tend to spiritualize it. In the modern West, we often narrow the scope of God's redemptive work by denigrating the material world. We tend to think, for example, that Jesus came to save our souls, but that our bodies are kind of irrelevant extraneous. In fact, many of us grew up hearing this outright. We were taught that the ultimate Christian hope is to escape this world one day, that we'll leave the problems and the decay and the trouble of embodiment, and that our eternal home is some place where we will not even need a body. Does that sound familiar to anyone in this room? Okay, I appreciate your honesty. To be fair, there are good reasons for coming to these conclusions. Some of them are right here in our text. Creation has been subjected to futility, remember? That means things are hard around here, legitimately hard. It is hard to have a body because it's vulnerable to disease and abuse and addiction and pain. It's hard to live in a world that's polluted physically and spiritually by injustice and racism and greed. This world is in bondage to corruption, Paul says. It is groaning, and we are groaning too. But the solution is not to escape the material world, the solution is to redeem it. That is the end game of the gospel. It isn't less than the salvation of our souls, but it is much more than that, friends. So often, even in the church, we set our sights on a hope that is too small. We're like the French peasants from Les Miz who sought victory over the only enemy they could see. So we need to hear the music of the gospel afresh and let Jesus expand our hope, to begin to imagine a victory that includes nothing less than the renewal of all things. Now what does that look like? What does it look like to expand our hope? Well, I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is in the short term, greater hope often looks like greater groaning. Because listen, if you've been taught to devalue something, then you learn not to care when it's abused or mistreated. After seven years of parenting boys, I have learned to devalue my furniture. (laughs) There are lots of pizza stains on my couch and you know, that's why we bought a brown couch. But when you care about something, when it has value to you, then you will be upset when something bad happens to it. And the gospel tells us that this world matters. Your body matters. It is of infinite value to God. Your body is spiritual and sacred. Maybe you've thought in the past that the Christian response to physical suffering or sexual abuse or chronic pain or any number of traumas endured by the body Maybe you thought you're supposed to just minimize it, just spiritualize it away. But here, the Apostle Paul validates your groaning. He validates your grief over any and every form of suffering in this world because of sin and its effects. Listen again to verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. We must let Jesus expand our hope, to expand our love and our vision for this world, even if in the short term, it expands our groaning. Okay, that's the bad news. Now on to the good news, looking ahead a little bit, the long-term effects of hope. The good news is that because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, because he has already defeated the things that hold us in bondage, we know that our groaning won't be the final word in this story. Listen again to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the last theme that we'll reflect on today, the theme of suffering. It's one of the oldest themes in the Bible, and we can trace it all the way back to Genesis 3, which we heard this morning where suffering is introduced as a consequence of sin. We saw that the result of disobedience meant the physical world itself would suffer futility, both our bodies and the ground from which we came. So, in a way, pain and suffering are part of the fall. They're part of what's broken about this world, what we grieve. But here in Romans, we see how Jesus takes up even that theme of suffering, and he recapitulates it. He reinterprets it in light of his own story and ministry. Listen to verse 17, this is right before our passage starts. Paul says, we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus takes up the theme of suffering by entering into it himself. And in doing so, he changes its very meaning In him, suffering is no longer merely the result of sin. In Christ, suffering becomes the path to glory. For Jesus, we know the cross was the prelude to the resurrection. And by faith, this becomes our story too. And the language that Paul uses to describe this transformation, this reinterpretation of our sufferings, is the language of childbirth. And isn't that interesting, since that's the language of the curse in Genesis 3. This is the recapitulation of a theme. The gospel turns our groanings into labor pains. Now here's the thing about childbirth. It hurts, but it's not the pain of futility. It's a productive pain It's the kind of suffering that a woman cooperates with. She welcomes the contractions, or at least she tries to, because they're doing something right. They're bringing a new life into the world. And the glory on the other side of that pain, when a mother holds her new baby, is not even worth comparing to the suffering that it cost her. This is how the gospel reinterprets all of our suffering in the present age. And I want to close with this because as I was praying through these scriptures this week, I had the sense that some of you might especially need to hear this. There are actually two kinds of suffering, two kinds of groaning that can be repurposed in light of the gospel. The first is the one that we've already touched on a fair amount, and it's the kind of suffering that we're generally comfortable talking about. This is the suffering that we experience, but we didn't cause. In other words, the bad stuff that happens to us. The Roman church was experiencing the suffering of persecution. They were victims of the sin and cruelty of others, and Paul wanted them to know your suffering will not be wasted. All of the bad things that happen to you can be transfigured, repurposed by God into something productive and even life-giving for you and for others. But there's another kind of suffering that also won't be wasted, And that's the kind that we're often more ashamed to admit. I'm talking about the suffering that we bring upon ourselves because of our own sin. Sometimes the bad things that happen in our lives are actually things we caused. The consequences of our sin, which Zach mentioned last week in his sermon about King David. David's exploitation of others and his failure to do right by his family, it had ripple effects that he lived with for the rest of his life. But I want you to hear this. Even that kind of suffering can be redeemed. Even your worst failures can be reinterpreted, retold as part of a bigger story. And here's the proof right in Genesis chapter three. In the same breath that God spelled out the consequences of Eve's sin, he planted a seed of hope. She would experience pain in childbirth, but through childbirth, she would also partner with God in defeating the serpent. Through childbirth, the seed of hope was literally born into the world to save us all. So whatever parts of your story feel the most shameful, whatever kinds of suffering you think are the most deserved or perhaps the most irredeemable, I encourage you To offer them up to God. And you might be surprised how he will use them, how he will incorporate them into the good and beautiful song that he is singing to the world. It may not make sense to you yet, or maybe not even in your lifetime. We know Eve didn't get to meet the Messiah, right? But friends, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it is in this hope, Paul says, that we were saved. So we wait eagerly, even as we groan. And this is how we learn to hear and to sing along with the music of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we do thank you for turning our stories into something that we could never have imagined. And for turning the story of this world Lord, into the story of your rescue and your beauty and your goodness that we get to enjoy with you forever. We pray that you would help us to hear this good news again afresh in the ways that each one of us needs to hear it. And give us courage, Lord, to respond and to partner with you in what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.